Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community, or join both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainer Sander Durr and his guests in an all-new episode. John Goldman, good afternoon. How are you doing? Welcome to the PSC Lounge. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you. As we mentioned in previous uh, episodes of the PST Lounge, we talk about professional scrum here, but today we'll be talking about something that's a little bit more fuzzy and intentionally vague, yet very hype. Talking about estimation and scrum. What do you think makes estimation such a difficult topic for many teams? Uh, the first thing, Sandra, is that the the word estimate or estimation kind of disappeared from the Scrum Guide in 2020, and uh, it, there was a kind of a straight substitution, pretty much, of the word size or sizing. And uh, some people didn't notice that, uh, but it was uh, quite a quite a change because essentially what it opened the door to was that actually maybe we don't need to estimate, uh, maybe. Uh, there's other ways of uh, figuring out how much effort there is in front of us or how, how many things we can get done. And um, the, there are complementary practices. Scrum doesn't prescribe um, how you do the sizing and so on, but there there are practices like, for example, story points uh, where people uh, come up with some relative estimate, sometimes based on complexity and risk, and they try to figure out how much uh, – how much effort is involved in this thing and uh, uh, people do that and uh, the other people use maybe t-shirt sizes um, sometimes what they do is they make t-shirt sizes equivalent to some story point number um, one is a small and two is a small medium this kind of thing and they go right up the scale some of them making the mistake actually of uh, maximizing the number of points or maximizing the t-shirt size so actually uh, they end up in a situation where there's a number of uh, mammoth or elephant-sized items in the backlog, and they've limited to 20 points or extra-large when maybe the thing is quadruple extra-large or something like that. Um, so you, you could use uh, relative sizing like um, like T-shirt sizing or with story points, or what uh, a lot of people don't realize as well is you can use time. Uh, you could uh, – ideal time is a bit tricky because, you know, when's the last time – we've had an ideal day, right? I mean, today hasn't been an ideal day for me, you know, but, uh, but one thing that people don't realize is you can actually look backwards. You can say, well, well, that feels like something we did uh, a year ago. And uh, that took uh, two months, you know, and um, the genius about that actually is that when you remember that it took two months, it includes the waiting time. Whereas if you're kind of estimating forward, you say, ah, I think that's going to take whatever number of days or whatever number of points or whatever. And you're kind of looking ahead. And the one thing a lot of people don't factor in is waiting time. So you've got story points, you've got t-shirt size, you've got time. And then uh, you can count the number of items. You can just count how many items, uh, valuable items. This is important. Because uh, sometimes people call their product backlog items product backlog items, uh, and, and they being product backlog items, they should be valuable. You should be able to get some 
change in customer behavior, change in end user behavior, move some metric, uh, hopefully if it's successful and delivering value when you release it. Uh, but if you're just counting tasks, uh, you know, it's no, it's no better than, uh, you know, measuring activity, really. You measure activity, you get more activity. And then there's another option, which is um, no estimates, uh, which I studied deeply to understand what was going on there. And they do some sizing, but it's more about, do we think this is small enough to kind of work on or can we kind of break this down so that we can like, find value sooner? So there are other options as well, like three-point method. You can do max, min. Uh, there's a few other, I'm sure there's other options out there, but they're, they were the kind of main options that I looked at in terms of complementary practices that a lot of people use when they're trying to size items. Why are people spending so much time trying to get the right estimate? There is no right estimate, right? It always is an estimate, a forecast. Yet we're still looking to make things perfect. Indeed. Uh, There's this kind of conflation between estimate and commitment, uh, estimate and uh, how long things will take. An estimate is an estimate. And um, and I think what happens is, Sometimes people want an estimate because they, they want some idea how big is this thing that's in front of them? Uh, when is it likely that will be delivered? Which is very different to, well, how much effort do I think is involved? And we often get these two things conflated. And we end up having these big discussions about, you know, whether this is a small or medium or a large or, you know, number of points or whatever. When actually the uh, what the you no know, estimates people and the Kanban people would be kind of more of a fan of would be, uh, you look at the, you look at an item, um, can we get this done in the next sprint or not? You know, according to our definition of done, you know, get it done professionally and so on. Can we do that or not? And and if you can't, uh, well, if you need to break it down. Before you bring it in, you might break it down. Okay, you can still refine it last minute, you know, in sprint planning, can't you? A lot of people forget that. You can actually refine in sprint planning. But by and large, you you, you don't bring in an, an elephant. You don't bring in a, a mammoth into, into a sprint, right? You break it down. And, there are and- still so many people that are overestimating what they can do. They're very confident, which to some to a certain extent is not that bad, but refuse yeah. to, to say, well, maybe, maybe, hear me out, maybe I should be a little bit more conservative. Why? Uh, because essentially people are kind of hedging because not only are they being asked for an estimate, but very quickly, even though everybody, everyone's telling people oh, they're just estimates or whatever, they end up being baked into some plan somewhere. And before you know it, we're all driving for some date. And uh, so people hedge, they sandbag. And actually, it leads to all sorts of bad behavior as well. I talk about um, story point inflation, uh, where uh, teams get measured on the number of story points to be delivered. Surprise, surprise, you got you pick up an item. <laughs> uh, is it a medium or is it a large? Well, you know, it's going to be a large, isn't it? Because <laughs> we're human beings. So <laughs> exactly. It's, it's gonna, and so I, I actually, one of my clients at the moment, their velocity in story points has doubled, so it looks beautiful. But when I look at the number of roadmap items that where there actually is value, uh, that throughput has halved, and um, and they're in danger of their cycle times doubling uh, in the next uh, six months because they have so many plates spinning at the same time. And so story point inflation, story point bingo, I call it, where it just becomes a game where like there's just numbers. <laughs> yeah, there's no value in there. 
No, and and you, it's the same by the way uh, with throughput. You can also throughput can be uh, the new story points if you're not careful. So you need to make sure that if you are counting items, that these items are valuable. Um, that you uh, whatever you're delivering, that that item it, is there potential value in that item. If we release that, can we get value? If there's not, if it's just a subtask and we're counting subtasks. Um, that's kind of like for the birds, really. It's like uh, that's just another little game of numbers. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So there's other ways, I would say. Estimations are there because we as people are horrendously bad at exact estimations. Yeah, it's quite hard to break up that, A, either we do the normalization of story points. In other words, we try to pin down the exact hours of a certain task yeah. or combine those with all the other influences like dependencies, waiting time for response or whatsoever, complexity, um, how tough it is, how, how, how much time it takes to get stuff done. All these other factors. Why, how I can always get my, wrap my head around why it's so challenging to split these things apart and, or to see them as we can do those together. Um, so one of the things, if we talk about normalization, first of all, every time I've had a single product backlog with multiple teams, when we had reference items where we knew what a small meant, what a medium meant, what a large was, and all that, and we had these reference items. So the idea was to keep us all aligned, that we all understood what a small, medium, large, extra large, and so on was. Every time we did that, when I got different teams looking at the same backlog, looking at the same scale, using the same reference items, um, they came up with different sizes. <laughs> so, and and what really what was more important to me was, well, do we have a common understanding of what it is we're trying to build? Uh, the most important thing is when you bring in work, do we understand it? it? Not just one person understands it in a team that the all the developers, the people who do the work in Scrum are called developers. So that all those people... Um, understand what we're trying to achieve here uh to avoid this uh one liner that uh uh one liner problem that Russell Lakoff mentioned which basically the more right we do the wrong thing the wronger we become so do we want to build the right thing or do we want to build a misunderstanding of the right thing and just kind of come up with something different so the, the conversation about the item is very important but that often gets conflated with uh, that conversation only happening when you size the items. And by the way, estimation doesn't just mean sizing a relative e effort of a, an item. It could also be for a particular goal, for example, uh, like a sprint goal or a product goal or some other goal. Uh, how many items do we think uh, will be needed to deliver this item? You know, give me a, an optimistic range, give me a pessimistic range, and it's going to be somewhere in between. And so that's another form of estima estimation. So, uh, and the distinction that the, you know, estimates people tell me is that forecasting would be uh, trying to figure out when something might be done based on data. So based on historical data in terms of how we're performing. So even if we do have a kind of a guesstimate about how much items are in front of us, we're looking at the data in terms of how many items we actually have the capability to deliver. Uh, whereas estimating would be at the start when we've got no data, uh, we're really just estimating. It's not a forecast because we've got no data to base this on. So that's kind of an important distinction that they make in the no estimates community. Which to a certain extent I do understand still. 
you know, there's always some experience because you don't get there just out of the blue. You know, you've always had performed some kind of work. You've studied to get to a certain point. So you, there's always some form of a baseline, some form of backpack to pull that experience from. Uh, I just mentioned that we there is no value in that estimation, yet we spend quite some time in there. I mean, the, the time box for a sprint planning event based on a full month of sprint is eight hours. Mm. Why do we still spend so much time in the estimations with professional scrum or in estimate and forecasting and um, those kind of activities while there is no value in the actual practice? I think a lot of it's got to do with uh, the way we think and, and trying to avoid that mind, mindset expression because we can't really uh, witness some way, the way someone thinks. But I think we see evidence uh, leaks, if you like, of how people think when they think that we can predict how much work we can get done in any time period, including a sprint, by the way. In Scrum, a lot of people don't realize that a commitment in Scrum is, means we're going to do our best. Uh, the higher order commitment would be to deliver a done increment and if there's a problem, we'll have a chat about that during the sprint. And usually we end up simplifying how we achieve the sprint goal when we discover that there's a problem. It's amazing what people accept when they realize that we can't do something <laughs> on time. I'm not sure if you noticed that. And so it's it's more about uh, uh, this delusion that all of our work is predictable and some of our work is complex. Uh, not all of it. We'd be out of business, I guess, if everything was complex. But a lot of our work is complex and in, in that it's uncomparable to work we did before. We've never done this before. Uh, we don't know how to do it. Uh, we don't have the skills. We don't, we don't even have the business domain. It might even be deeply complex. We might even understand who we're building this for. Um, could be a brand new product idea. And we're not really sure which people might buy this, which kind of personas, if you like, might buy this product and might even know what the product is. And so it depends on where you are. But in most situations, people have a product. There's a product backlog. So there's they kind of know what product they're building. Usually, uh, in Scrum at UX, we talk more about uh, not even knowing what your product is. Uh, but even so, there will be still a lot of work that's uncomparable. And when it's uncomparable, um, essentially, it, you can't compare it to what you did before. So we actually don't know what we'll do. So we're, we're so the whole idea of empiricism is that you 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 uh, try something. Uh, hopefully based on some kind of experiment, some hypothesis, some kind of, you know, you, you don't just kind of shoot in the dark, but you you you, you try to step towards your product goal, if you like, uh, with a sprint goal, and you say, well, okay, we, we think this uh, thing will happen if we deliver this goal. We don't know until we release and we get feedback, but this is what this is our hypothesis, if you like. And uh, you could even argue that each of the items within the goal are a hypothesis as well, if you really go uh, into that. And... Um, and we don't know what's going to happen. We'll 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 see what happens. We'll we don't know how difficult it's going to be. Uh, we know some things. So sometimes we can get together as developers and we know what to do. Uh, by definition, I think the work is complicated. If you uh, if the experts get together, they know what to do. There's a chance that get, there's a good chance they get it right first time. Uh, but if they need a bit of fresh thinking, they need some outside perspective. It could mean that they might need to tap into skills from people outside the team. Or, or even tap into uh, uh, skills from people who aren't specialists in that area that might even be within the team, gets a fresh thinking in terms of how do we do this? We might need to do some experiments. So essentially, a sprint is like it's like an experiment, really, in terms of we're going to see what happens, and then we'll build up some evidence. Hopefully, a lot of people forget about the evidence, uh, you know, quantitative and qualitative evidence in terms of we'll see something, and then we'll figure it out. So that essentially means that 
when the work is uncomparable, um, sometimes forecasting is like smoke and mirrors, you know, when people kind of don't get that. They kind of, they think we can predict. No, it also ties together with the Scrum values very closely, right? Um, being open about uh, about the work and the challenges that lie ahead, but also commit to goals rather than to, to scope. And if, we're, we're, if you are to commit to a full scope of the, the sprint backlog or whatsoever, and then you show up during the sprint review and say, well, we did achieve our sprint goal, but we didn't achieve the, our commitment in, in the sense of the, the scope. Uh, out of the 10 items, you only did six. Your stakeholders will be like, well, you promised me the other four as well. Bring those two. Well, we didn't do them. So, so that's why things are creating a forecast, or, right? In the, the estimate of this is what we think we can do. It's very important also to give a signal that there are factors that may uh, affect the way that we conduct our business and therefore our ability to deliver a certain margin of the scope. Yeah, indeed. And, and so the the empiricism uh, isn't just embraced by the Scrum team. And what's really strong in the 2020 Scrum Guide is the stakeholders also are expected to really be committed to that whole idea. And they're not just that the Scrum team hasn't been committing to the uh, the individual items. They've been committing to the goal. So a lot of people don't realize that actually if you had six items in a sprint, maybe four of them are for the sprint goal. Two of them, one's to do with an improvement and one's an important thing, but it's not part of the sprint goal. So if you run into trouble during the sprint, we kind of know what the sacrificial lambs are, so to speak. And so it's 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 not committing to scope. It's not committing to items. It's like, how do we achieve that goal? I had a really interesting story when I was in Dell, the computer company years ago, where we figured out during the sprint that we uh, something that we thought was going to take two days was going to take two months. We're going to be dead in two months. Like we had to be live in two months. I can... So I went to the product owner and said, we can't find a technical solution to this. So we found out that there was one part of two serial numbers. We thought like, how can a part of two serial numbers? Like uh, that's like a axiom supply chain, one part, one serial number. Anyway, we found this part that had two serial numbers and we would have to change the whole back end to deal with that and no value really whatsoever. So I went to the product owner and I said, look, uh, the spring calls in danger here. Um, we can't find a technical solution to this. Um, uh, is there a business solution to this? And she said, yeah, there is. I said, well, what's the solution? This is like people in the factory looking at a screen. Sa- Sonder ordered this uh, computer and he wanted this keyboard and I wanted this kind of trackpad or whatever. And they'd look it on the screen and uh, we had to change that system, you see. And she said, uh, they're picking components out of bins, as you, if you can imagine along the line. She said, why don't you put a paper sticker on the bin? I said, what? You want us to put a paper sticker on the bin? She said, yeah. There's no value in it and satisfies the sprint goal. It satisfies the sprint goal. She said, yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Happy days. It wasn't very... Creative thinking. (laughs) It wasn't very pretty, but you know what? It's amazing when you... This is the beauty about goals that... And it's really good that the, the sprint goal is immutable as well because essentially it forces you to think more about... Okay, well, we're struggling with this. So, is there another way? Is how can we simplify? Can we, I mean, that's a bit extreme. Paper stick around a bin, but it kind of articulates that it's amazing what people accept when you can prove to them that you can't deliver something on time. And so, we can have really those discussions during the sprint. So, you're right. It's about um, the way of thinking, not just within the team, but also with the people that we're dealing with. And and the Kanban people, to be fair, have brought a very interesting tool 
to the table that really helps us as well, known as probabilistic forecasting. And um, that really helps to kind of, uh, I th- the way I put it is, it helps p- our stakeholders to learn expectations about uncertainty instead of expectations about dates. That's uh, a good lesson. Yeah. Because if you can say, for example, you know, 85% chance it'll be done by Christmas. That means 15% chance it won't be done by Christmas. Uh, that's already helping with uncertainty. But what I do, the key phrase, Arpad Pascolti uh, um, told me to use this expression, and I've been quoting him ever since. Uh, so what he says, he says, 85% chance it'll be done by Christmas. That means 15% chance it won't be done by Christmas. And then he says, and I'll give you a better forecast next week. In other words, this forecast is wrong, which is genius, I think. And you do go back next week. <laughs> and it will be different. And then again, and, used to, you know, it's like that's the so true. And yeah, exactly. The weather forecast, yeah. you know, the coming weekend. So currently, the recording we're recording at thirtieth thirtieth of August, coming weekend. I'm going to the Formula One race in Zandvoort together with my mom. Mm-hmm. So, as a frantic dude, I'm looking at the weather forecast because we live in the Netherlands. Therefore, it's it fluctuates day to day, expecting rain. Uh, and you see this forecast continuously change, but the more that you progress towards the actual date, the better the forecast is going to be, the more likely that your forecast is going to be correct. So I'm already settling in here for rain on uh, on Sunday for the race, which means that I have to adopt my own circumstances. I have to bring in my rain clothes or whatever stupid outfit I, I want to wear to, pr- to protect myself a little bit. But that's the same with product development. You want to assess whether you are still how far you are off with your uh, with your forecast with your estimation and gradually just adapt that or adapt that as much as possible to to erase the likelihood of the achievement yet business will still hone in on a certain number and that's going to be it for for forever so let's say now I'm going to say the forecast is going to be 26 degrees and it looks like sunny on Saturday. So I'm going to prepare for that while maybe it's going to be forecasted to be raining on a Friday. But because initially we said it's going to be 26 degrees, therefore we're going to stick with that. I've, personally, I noticed that it's really hard for organizations to let go of that initial estimate and to gradually check in. Are we still on track? If not, what do we need to do to change our circumstances in order to cap- uh, capitalize on any opportunity or to, to maximize uh, the be- business value? How do you deal with that? Yeah, in fact, you just triggered me to uh, think about empiricism in two dimensions because you've got the uncertainty in terms of dates. You've got uncertainty in terms of what you might achieve by those dates. Uh, but also you've got uncertainty about whether the direction is the right direction. So one of the things about empiricism is as you go along, you build up evidence and you're uh, finding out stuff. And you might build up evidence that the direction you're going in is the wrong direction and you should pivot and go to a different direction. And so this is another uh, shift in the thinking as well, because uh, if people are fixed on oh, uh, getting to that in a shiny star in the sky, and actually, that's not where we should go because we actually learned some really important information, but that's not where we should go. Uh, this is a real journey for our stakeholders to go on that there's uncertainty in the dates, there's uncertainty with what we get by the dates, there's uncertainty about what, what, are, what we should try even try to achieve by those dates based on what we're learning. And so the whole idea is that instead of knowing what's going on, it's about 
learning what the right thing is to do. And the metaphor I used a lot is from football about the goalposts are moving, and and, and that's often a, expressed in a negative way, oh, you're moving the goalposts. Uh, but I put it to you that in an empirical situation, you would want the goalposts to move, and it is okay for them. Now, I'm not suggesting that we move the goalposts every single day and that we're kind of like whack-a-mole at the funfair, you know, kind of responding <laughs> to every single little thing. I'm not suggesting that. But if we're building a fairly compelling set of evidence, and customers are telling us something, and they're pretty compelling, and the analytics is not just what they're telling us because sometimes customers don't know what they want. They can't articulate what they want. Uh, but we can see in the evidence in terms of how they behave – if we're seeing compelling evidence that we're going in the wrong direction, we should move the goalposts. And so this is really interesting for stakeholders. This is getting, I think if we can get our stakeholders used to the forecast changing, the uh, just like the weather, and they realize, you know what, when, when you talked about the Grand Prix or on, on the weekend, um, that, well, actually, um, when you got the weather forecast, they're not even saying 100% guarantee it's going to rain. They're probably saying, uh, they might probably saying 80% chance it will rain uh, between this time and this time, 100% chance it will rain between that time and that time. They're very, very say 100%. But it's it's usually uh, presented to us in probabilities. But because the weather people know that we're so used to the weather forecast not being perfect all the time, they don't have to say that it's uncertain. And we want our stakeholders to get used to that as well in product development. Uh, and product management, we want them to get used to the idea that, you know what, I know Sandra said, uh, you know, we need to be ready for 26 degrees at the weekend uh, Celsius, but uh, uh, actually, you know what, things can change and, and we expect them to change. And I think it's by us as practitioners uh, working together, we can help our stakeholders to see that there is this uncertainty. It's not 100% guarantee we'll have it done by the 14th of December. It's a uh, constantly evolving thing. Whose accountability is that to work with the stakeholders to to in, get that ingrained that they understand? Well, we're not sure how this is going to play out. We have to figure this out. The only way that we're going to be certain is by looking back. Yeah, there's there's three accountabilities in Scrum, and uh, one of them is the Scrum Master who has a few stances, and one of them would be acting as a change agent, working with the organization to understand the whole notion about uncertainty in terms of what direction we're going in, um, how quickly we might get there, and how we enable teams to do that. The Scrum Master would also help people in terms of um, seeing uh, seeing agility as not just a team sport, as Klaus Leopold says, that it's a company sport, that there are problems, impediments, we call them in Scrum, there are impediments beyond the control limits of the team sometimes that maybe need some leadership support, and the Scrum Master would work with those. But also I would say that the product owner... Uh, a really good product owner, uh, if there's one job they really have, would be to you know manage the expectations. And I don't mean expectations about dates. I mean ex- manage expectations about uncertainty. So actually, but the Scrum Master probably needs to be there to help the product owner to see that and to kind of support them on that journey uh, to see that actually uh, when we're when you're communicating as a product owner, can you make sure you don't say make it seem like it's a certainty. Uh, because depending who's looking at what you're saying or reading what you're writing, they might misunderstand it. So how can we make sure that everything that you say as a product owner is couched on uncertainty, that we don't know everything? Uh, eventually, we'll learn lots and uh, some of our work will move into the complicated space and we can be uh, we can be more predictable about what might happen. And Kanban can help us with that as well. Uh, 
Uh, but uh, while we're in the complex space, we need, I think Scrum Masters have a big job in, uh, in helping leaders, stakeholders, uh, product owners understanding. But uh, I think there's a dual accountability here between the product owner and the, and the Scrum Master. The product owner managing the expectations, the Scrum Master making sure that the product owner understands how to set expectations and what kind of expectations they should be setting. Could a, um, a stakeholder be invited to the sprint planning? So, A, of course, to, to increase the likelihood of the understanding in order to, to make items, product backlog items, more ready, quote-unquote. Yeah. Uh, to anyone listening, please, this is not a definition of ready because it doesn't exist, but to make it more ready, um, but also so that they understand what kind of factors that people are dealing with that is that their their estimate is based on. So they see the complexity that they are dealing with. So I, I'll answer with a kind of rhetorical question, right? And uh, But then I'll, then I'll give you the proper answer. That's, you know, I could jump out the window here, but I probably shouldn't, right? <laughs> but I'll Depending answer. on your goal? <laughs> Indeed, yeah. But uh, I'm on the first floor, right? There's, uh, there's concrete over uh, there. Uh. Probably won't be good. <laughs> so... Um, so let me answer you seriously, though. But if the stakeholders are uh, contributing to how we actually do the work, as in they're more, they're like technical subject matter experts, they can really help us to understand. Like I had a case when I was in an oil company where we had two gentlemen in the entire company of 100,000 employees and 400,000 contractors at the time, like half a million people. But there was two people who had all the tooling for uh, for performance testing of a SharePoint solution on an internet, right? Two people. And they each had 12,000 Active Directory accounts. So you or me could uh, get our own account to hammer the website, you know, 12,000 times. But these guys could actually get 12,000 users to hit your site at the same time. They had all the fancy tools. They had the skills as well. I learned things with them. Like, for example, they, they asked as well, they said, uh, which stuff are you kind of worried about as developers that might be a bit dodged that we might want to test a little bit, you know? And then they asked a very important question that we wouldn't have thought of. They said, uh, there might be something you didn't don't think is risky, but maybe it's going to be run in a few million times. Uh, which features will there be? Uh, oh, actually, uh, that one over there. Yeah, we probably want to blast that because we don't want to find out that something you're not worried about actually is a problem. So they had skills that we didn't have in the team. We weren't truly cross-functional. We, oh, we had all the SharePoint skills, testing skills, UX, all that kind of stuff. But we just didn't have the resources, the tools, the wherewithal to do that kind of performance testing. So we created a specific product backlog element of the product backlog to visualize the dependency on these guys. And uh, we gave them the documents that they needed in terms of you know which features are going to be the ones that are a bit dodged from uh, uh, from a kind of technical point of view that they might need to look at uh, for performance and which ones will we use the most. And they asked us some other more nuanced questions as well. And we collaborated with them and we, we, uh, but we, um, we would have been kind of doing a lot of that work in product backlog refinement and we would have been doing work during the sprint with them, but we could have brought them into sprint planning, but we didn't. We, uh, one of the things, one of the secret sauces for Scrum is if you do product backlog refinement really well, planning becomes a bit of a, uh, fairly straightforward uh, to put it that way it's it's you kind of done all the thinking already almost apart from new items that might have just come straight in from the sprint review so uh if the stakeholder is not someone who's contributing to the technical delivery of this thing i would say they should not be there because one of the real side effects of a stakeholder say a non-delivery stakeholder let's put it that way non-technical stakeholder attending your your sprint planning 
is a lot of people forget that the product owner doesn't have to keep everybody happy. You keep everybody happy, nobody's happy. So imagine a stakeholder comes in and they're not very pleased with the uh, what, what the product owner has ordered. The product owner might actually have better insights. They might have actually uh, looked at the customer analysis. They might have actually visited some customers and found out what was really going on. And then, meanwhile, there's other product managers within the company who aren't as uh, good at the product management as maybe they should be. And they're just thinking inside the building and they're just thinking in their own, their own little internal ways. And they don't realize actually what the product owner knows. And uh, if the developers see that the stakeholder disagrees with the product owner, we have a new problem because now the developers are kind of wondering, hey, in a second, this product owner, can we really uh, can we really trust this guy? The developers might uh, have this delusion that, oh, the product owner needs to make sure they're all agreed before we go ahead. So maybe they'll change their mind. So maybe we shouldn't start this out. Maybe we should kind of put this on a slow burner and not really move forward with this. And it just creates all sorts of problems. And uh, I think one thing that you'd really want to be care- careful of as a product owner is the developers losing trust that you um, are in charge of the order of the backlog. As soon as they think that you're not uh, you're not on top of the order of the backlog, um, don't be surprised if the developers start making up their own priorities because they think, and they might be right, <laughs> they think they have a better order for the backlog. Long answer. Well, yeah, the, that signal has been given. And to be fair, if, if you're that disconnected with your own product backlog, they have a better say in it. They are yeah. probably more uh, aware of things going on in general if you lack that as a as a as a product owner. I mean, that's the most elementary thing for you to do as a product owner. So, be on top of that minimal. Exactly, yeah, it's 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 crucial. And and the other thing that um, that I talk to stakeholders about as well, by the way, is uh, this delu- other delusion. Uh, this is my personal opinion. I wouldn't be shared by all PSTs, but. Uh, a lot of the items in our product backlog should never be delivered. Why not? Because uh, there's empirical evidence to show that uh, depending on the reports you look at, it could be you hear two thirds from some people, you hear 70% from some people, but a lot of the items that we build, looking at the evidence, are rarely or never used. And I'd, I'd, I had a severe case in a telecoms company a few years ago where a guy admitted to me that he took stuff out of production. I said, you take stuff out of production? He says, yeah, I take it out. They're just putting in bugs and stuff and blah, blah, blah. It's just cluttering up my system. I said, okay. Um, I was kind of admiring this guy, actually, because I, I was kind of cutting on to what yeah. he was at, up to. But uh, I said, uh, what happens if, they, if people notice that there's something missing? He said, I've only ever had one case where somebody noticed. And uh, I said, oh, sorry about that. And then he put it back in. But in all the other cases, they didn't notice. And this kind of proved to me that uh, it was even higher than 70% in his company because people were deluded, delivering stuff, think they're making a difference. And a lot of people, do you know what they don't do? They don't actually check, measure, and, and see, is anyone actually using this? Did it make a difference? <laughs> no, uh, exactly. Yeah, it happens in uh, feature factory situations. Because professional scrum teams wouldn't do that. They would actually check. But one of the things you can do is... We know that in Scrum, for Hold example. On. My uh, my bells go on. Two seconds. Yeah. yeah.
My apologies for that. It's all good. You warned me. It's all good. <laughs> but I'm trying to remember what I was talking about. It was something to do with discovery. And... Yeah, the feature factories measuring. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things about Scrum, the quality of Scrum, is that when we deliver items, product backlog items, valuable items, uh, there's quality on the inside. In Scrum, there's a thing called a definition of done, and it really helps Scrum to stand apart from other approaches where we're clear about when we say something's done, uh, we have a kind of a, I don't want to say a checklist because that sounds like process-oriented, but we have a, an idea, kind of an agreement about what we did. We we did a code review. We did some testing. Or if it's marketing, we, we got approval from some stakeholders or whatever it is, right? And so we 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 build in quality. We build in quality, but when you build things to quality, it takes a bit longer because it's a lot of work to do. And so sometimes, if you have evidence that you should build this thing, because customers are beating the door down, they're saying they definitely want this thing. Yeah, you should just build it. Of course, yeah, you've got loads of evidence. But if you think that something's valuable, but you're not really confident about your ability to harvest that value then you might need to do some cheap experiments, uh, paper prototypes, even just interviewing customers, things like that. You can still get it wrong even when you do that, but you're you're at least trying to reduce the number of items that end up in your development delivery funnel, if you like, uh, clogging up the system with stuff that maybe nobody's going to use. And so Scrum at UX is a really powerful potion together. The, it's, it's, it's a lethal combination in terms of trying to find where the value is. So our stakeholders as well, there's, that's another thing. So we saw, we talked about uncertainty about dates, uncertainty about what might be done by the dates, uncertainty about what direction we might go in, but also uncertainty about those items that we thought we think were valuable, that maybe they're not as valuable as we thought they were. Maybe we discover by accident there's other items much more valuable, which again confirms that we should move the goalposts. And that's, yeah. a, that's a key point in uncertainty. And circling that back to the story that you to- just told about keeping stuff in there or just pulling the plug. I mean, there's a difference between building something. Obviously, stakeholders will ask for something because they feel it holds value. But the actual value will only be able to be measured when it's out there, when it's in production. And only then you'll know whether you've built the right thing. So if it appears that no one's actually using it while a thousand stakeholders were screaming bloody murder that they needed it just before, you can still pull the plug. I mean, you've proven it holds no value because apparently no one is needing it. And even though a thousand stakeholders said they needed it, if they're not using it, you can still take it out. But again, that comes back to measuring stuff and how that relates to you, your ability to achieve goals. And I think that's that's where some things in the refinement process will also get a bit fuzzy, where they, people and teams speak about the details, the kind of tasks that need to be performed, the sizing and the estimation. But they fail to, to connect between how does, is this item going to help us achieve our goals? And how is this going to be a stepping stone towards the achievement of goals? And if only that step would have been done and performed more often, I feel we would get less of a marshmallow kind of product. Exactly. Totally with you. And if only we could encourage more people to do that, what happens to a lot of organizations and product groups 
is they set deadlines already. So even when I teach people Scrum and UX, you know, that lovely interlacing of dual track agile where Scrum and UX discovery and, and development delivery is all intermingled in a lovely way. Uh, if there's already a deadline set, a lot of people mix up UI and UX as well. They think they're the same thing. And actually the, there's a lot of research that needs to be done. Usability testing is never finished. UX is never finished. But uh, if there's already a deadline, well, people kind of say, well, what's the point in doing the research? Because uh, we've already got a deadline. Someone already has an idea about what we should build. So we should just build it. So we're just making widgets for developers now, for the other developers, I mean, because everybody in Scrum doing the work is a developer. But uh, that's where it kind of go, goes a bit funny as well, that um, even when we're coming up with these original deadlines, that's another key test for me for stakeholders. Uh, are you imposing these dates on the teams without consulting them? Are you actually having a sensible conversation with your with your scrum teams to talk about the art of the possible and maybe better ways? I love what Patrick Lagioni says. Can we eighty twenty this? Can we get you know? Can we get eighty uh, percent of the value from twenty percent of the outputs here? You know, and he and he says for everything, can we eighty twenty this? Uh, and it's difficult to do eighty twenty if you don't have goals. And uh, when I say goals, I don't mean like fixed goals. I mean like a, like a direction of travel. If you don't have some idea of what direction you're going in and what what goals you're trying to achieve, then eighty twenty becomes a bit of a nonsense because like eighty percent of what because we don't have a goal, so we don't know what outcomes we're trying to achieve, and it's it gets difficult. Um, so goal orientation is crucial as well. Less about you know what outputs we'll have done by what day, but what goals are we trying to achieve, and how will we know that we're winning? Uh, what, what qualitative and quantitative measures would would change if we were actually succeeding? Yeah. Now I want to circle this this conversation back to the tenth principle of the Agile Manifesto before wrapping this uh, this beautiful episode of uh, up. Simplicity, the art of maximizing the amount of work not done, and I feel that's that's the whole center of this discussion. Indeed, do you agree with me? Yeah, I do. I interpret that. I used to interpret that uh, principle as simplicity of design before, but now I interpret it as kind of like what they say in the Kanban world, stop starting, start finishing. Let's focus. Let's, uh, what I love about Scrum, you got a product goal that gives you focus, a sprint goal that gives you even more focus. Um, hopefully your personal values align with the Scrum values and then you, you'll, you'll be happy with the Scrum values. Focus is one of the Scrum values as well. Focus, focus, focus. And as Jim Benson from Personal Kanban says, focus and finish, focus and finish. And if you narrow down what you're working on and try to, uh, this is kind of difficult to overcome in your head, but if you actually just do less things at the same time, get them out of your hair really quickly, reduce your cycle time, increase your throughput, uh, you're increasing your chances that you'll have more outcomes. You're still delivering outputs, uh, but you can measure after you deliver those outputs pretty quickly uh, whether you made a difference. Do we change a customer behavior? Are customers completing tasks more easily? Is there less friction in their journey? Are some organizational revenue metrics going up? Have we reduced our costs? Have we protected our reputation? Are employees happier? Uh, have we improved our capability to deliver even? Have we got more automation and so on? These are things that we can measure fairly quickly after we deliver, but the key thing is focus and finish and finish not just getting things to done but getting things released as well and getting some feedback from the market and when you get that feedback tweaking because we will discover stuff that we don't expect 80 20 your backlog your entire product backlog john coleman where can people find you 
Uh, you can find me on the Exagility podcast, also Exagility website, x-agility.com. There's a lot of uh, um, there's a lot of uh, executive agility content coming there soon. I'm also on uh, orgdisruption.com. Uh, they'd be the main places to find me. Uh, you'll, see, you'll find me on social as well, the usual LinkedIn, Insta, all those places. Awesome. Thank you very much. I think this is going to be useful to a lot of people, and I'm definitely going to remember the 8020. I'm going to apply that right away. Thank you so Thank much, you very much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, or joining our warm and welcoming Discord community. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility podcast.